Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, Welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer. I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. M-S-W Media. Hey, everybody, it's AG, and welcome to Refried Beans, where we play an episode of the Daily Beans podcast from the same week, either one, two, or three years ago, so we can see how far we've come. So please enjoy this episode from Days Gone By, and note the date in the intro. Refried beans. I like refried beans. That's why I want to try fried beans, because maybe they're just as good and we're, we're wasting time. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Monday, December 20th, 2021. Today... Watchdog group American Oversight has sued the Departments of Justice and Homeland Security for any communications regarding the coup. McConnell makes a 180 on his views of the J6 committee. We're learning the identities of some of the authors of the text messages sent to Mark Meadows. The Department of Justice has released a text message between high-ranking officials discussing Jeffrey Clark. The J6 committee is considering adding a foreign influence expert. Jamie Raskin reminds us of a key element of the coup attempt from Louis Gohmert, and Kanye West's third-party spoiler campaign was funded by the GOP. I'm your host, Allison Gill. Hey, everybody. We have lots of news today, including a discussion later on in the show with the host of Justice Matters, Mr. Glenn Kirshner. We're going to talk about statements from Trump over the weekend that could indicate how much trouble he knows he's in. 
Uh, Dana Goldberg is off this week, but I'll be joined by Andrew Torres tomorrow and Wednesday and Amy Carrero Thursday and Friday. I'll be off next week, but we're releasing content for you, including some important interviews about the coup from the past few months and some new ones as well. And thanks to our subscribers who get these episodes ad-free for as little as three bucks a month. We couldn't do what we do without your support. So thank you and happy holidays. Before we get to the weekend news, Senator Joe Manchin of Virginia, West Virginia, went on Fox News this morning and told the country he was a hard no on Biden's Build Back Better plan, despite having given his good faith word to support the framework. Um, and he did that face to face with Biden in recent weeks. West Virginia ranks 50th in child care, 50th in public health, 45th in education, 50th in infrastructure and 48th in employment. Manchin has a yacht and probably drove his Maserati to the Fox studios today to tell the president of his own party to pretty much go fuck himself. Jen Psaki released a scathing White House response saying Senator Manchin's comments this morning on Fox are at odds with discussions this week with the president, with the White House staff and with his own public utterances. On Tuesday of this week, Senator Manchin came to the White House and submitted to the president in person, face to face, a written outline for Build Back Better that was the same size and scope of the president's framework and covered many of the same priorities. While that framework was missing key priorities, we believed it could lead to a compromise acceptable to all. Senator Manchin promised to continue conversations in the days ahead and to work with us to reach that common ground. This is all Jen Psaki's statement. If his comments on Fox and written statements indicate an end to that effort, they represent a sudden and inexplicable reversal in his position and a breach of his commitments to the president and the senator's colleagues in the House and Senate. We will not relent in the fight to help Americans with their child care, health care, prescription drug costs and elder care and to combat climate change. The fight for Build Back Better is too important to give up. We will find a way to move forward next year. That is Jen Psaki's statement. Uh, I encourage you to read the entire statement, and we will keep you apprised on any updates on the bill. All right, we have a lot of news to get to. Let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell signaled support for the bipartisan House Committee investigating the deadly January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol by a pro-Trump mob, saying that what the panel is trying to uncover is, quote, something the public needs to know, unquote. Now, that's a far cry from his initial feelings about the committee when in June he insisted it wasn't necessary to have one at all. And it's no wonder he's changed his tune, given the recent revelations showing potential criminal activity at the highest levels of government, including members of Congress, members of Trump's cabinet, Trump lawyers, the Trump White House and the Trump Department of Justice. So what is exactly going on with the Department of Justice, Merrick Garland and the FBI? June 24th was the last official statement we got from Attorney General Merrick Garland on the status of the 1-6 investigation. In that statement, Garland said, quote, the Department of Justice reached several benchmarks in our investigation in January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. We've now crossed the threshold of 500 arrests, including the 100th arrest of a defendant on charges of assaulting federal law enforcement officers. This morning, we arrested our first defendant on charges that include assaulting a member of the news media. I could not be more proud of the extraordinary efforts by investigators and prosecutors to hold accountable those who engaged in criminal acts that day. Particular credit goes to those serving as prosecutors and agents in Washington, D.C., as well as those in the FBI field office and U.S. attorney's offices across the country and with the department's National Security Division. Our efforts to bring criminal charges are not possible without the continued assistance of the American public. To date, we've received more than 200,000 digital tips. I assure the American people that the Department of Justice will continue to follow the facts in the case and charge what the evidence supports 
to hold all January 6th perpetrators accountable. Now, most recently in October, Garland testified before two committees in Congress. He mostly sidestepped questions from lawmakers on whether the department was criminally investigating the leaders of the coup. But in one marked exchange with Senator Whitehouse, who said, I'm hoping that the due diligence of the FBI is being applied not just to the characters who trespassed in the Capitol that day or who engaged in violent acts, but that you're taking the look you would properly take at any case involving players behind the scenes, funders of the enterprise, and so forth in this matter as well. And there's been no decision to say we're limiting this case just to the people in the building that day, and we're not going to take a serious look at anybody behind it. Garland replied, Senator, I'm very limited as to what I can say because we have a criminal investigation going forward. The investigation is being conducted by the prosecutors in the U.S. attorney's offices and by the FBI field office, and we have not constrained them in any way. White House then asked, and the old doctrine of follow the money, which is a well-established principle of prosecution, is that alive and well? To which Garland responded, it's fair to say that all investigative techniques of which you're familiar, and some maybe that you're not familiar with because they post-date your time, are all being pursued in this matter. Now, I'd like to discuss some public-facing information we've gotten, albeit small, that support the statements of the Department of Justice. First, back to Garland's statement in June, my ears perked up at, quote, particular credit goes to those serving as prosecutors and agents in Washington, D.C., as well as those in the FBI field offices and U.S. attorney's offices across the country, and with the Department of National Security Division. The National Security Division in the department is overseen by the Assistant Attorney General, whom, with the Principal Deputy Assistant Attorney General, they oversee the Executive Office, the office that administers the entire division. Some of the things the National Security Division at DOJ is responsible for include counterintelligence and export control. That's responsible for supervising investigations and prosecutions relating to espionage or trafficking of national security information and military hardware. The counterterrorism section, responsible for supporting law enforcement efforts, policy, and strategy in combating international and domestic terrorism. And the Foreign Investment Review Section, responsible for investigating and mitigating foreign investment critical in U.S. infrastructure and commerce. With regards to national security, the House Committee investigating the January 6th assault on the Capitol is weighing whether to hire staff members who can analyze social media posts and examine the role foreign adversaries play in sowing divisions among Americans over the outcome of the presidential election, according to two people briefed on the committee's decision-making. Garland, saying back in June the National Security Division is involved in the sprawling 1-6 inquiry, coupled with the committee considering hiring foreign interference experts, tells me that the committee and the Department of Justice are working together on this aspect of the investigation. And it could also explain the extreme secrecy that usually accompanies a counterintelligence investigation. And that makes sense. After all, back in June, when Garland made that statement, the chair of the newly formed J6 committee, Benny Thompson, told Hugo Lowell at The Guardian that, quote, he expects the select committee and senior House investigators to meet with the attorney general, Merrick Garland, and expressed optimism for conducting his investigation in close coordination with the Justice Department. He was adamant that his investigation would not overlap with existing criminal probes opened by the Justice Department and the U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia. Still, he said he hoped the Department of Justice would cooperate with his inquiry. Unquote. And we've gotten some glaring clues about that apparent cooperation between the committee and the Department of Justice. First, we know about the FBI 302s that show that during interviews with the FBI, the FBI asked violent insurrectionists if they had contact with, quote, any members of Congress and their staff, unquote. 
And Benny Thompson recently has made statements regarding the members of Congress text messages to Meadows as the J6 committee looking into communications between insurrection leaders and, quote, members of Congress and their staff, unquote. Taking the links between violent insurrectionists and the White House, Kyle Cheney at Politico this weekend wrote that Brandon Straka, a Donald Trump ally who spoke at the January 5th Stop the Steal rally in D.C., has since pled guilty for joining the mob that stormed onto the grounds of the Capitol, and he has provided investigators with information they say, quote, may impact the government's sentencing recommendation. It's an indication that Straka, one of the few January 6th defendants who is also of interest to congressional investigators, has cooperated with federal prosecutors in a substantive way. Straka, who who describes himself as a former liberal, became a relatively prominent figure in Trump world in 2018 when he founded the walkaway campaign to encourage progressive liberals to abandon Democrats. He was just one of two speakers at pro-Trump events on January 5th and January 6th, criminally charged for their roles in the Capitol attack. Owen Schroyer, an InfoWars broadcaster and ally of Alex Jones, also faces misdemeanor charges in the case. Straka pleaded guilty in October to a single misdemeanor charge and was set to be sentenced this week, but prosecutors have asked for a 30-day delay so that his new evidence, quote, can be properly evaluated. Straka was among the long list of pro-Trump figures that the January 6th Select Committee in the House has inquired about. He appears on the list that the panel sent to the National Archives seeking records from the Trump White House. That is a direct link between the J6 Committee and the DOJ investigating the ties between the hard coup, which is the violent attack on the Capitol, and the soft coup, the Pence pressure campaign to throw out electoral votes. Another publicly reported link between the committee and Department of Justice is the Sidney Powell criminal probe we learned about a couple weeks ago, that a grand jury has been impaneled in D.C. and has been for months to probe politically charged 1-6 cases, including the funding behind the Trump election lawsuits. Not only is the DOJ looking into fraud perpetrated by Sidney Powell and the Kraken elite strike force, but the committee is also interviewing people in that case that have testified to the federal grand jury. And let's not forget what Jamie Raskin said this week. Um, he said a significant detail in that it was part of a plan to isolate and coerce Pence, is what he calls this. And what he's referring to is a lawsuit filed by Louis Gohmert on December 27th, after the election, that received the backing of Sidney Powell, who just 16 days earlier created the PACs that are now under criminal investigation by the Department of Justice. In that lawsuit, Gohmert argued Pence should assert unilateral control over the certification, governed only by the vague wording of the 12th Amendment. Gohmert's move forced Pence to publicly resist Trump's subversion of the election. And that was just a week before January 6th joint session of Congress. When the Justice Department stepped in to defend Pence from the lawsuits on December 29th, it marked the first time Pence signaled he wouldn't fold to Trump's demands. That significant detail that was part of a plan to coerce and isolate Pence, as Raskin put it, draws another direct link between Sidney Powell and the soft coup, which I imagine is being probed by the Justice Department in the grand jury out of D.C. That is speculative. And yet, this probe stretches well beyond the rioters, the Trump Department of Justice, members of Congress, and the president. The corrupt obstruction of the certification of electoral votes permeated the entire Trump cabinet. We learned this weekend that members of the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol believe former Texas governor and Trump Energy Secretary Rick Perry was the author of a text message sent to Meadows the day after the 2020 election, pushing an aggressive strategy for three state legislatures to ignore the will of their voters and send fraudulent slates of electors to the Capitol. A spokesman for Perry told CNN that the former energy secretary denies being the author of the text, 
Multiple people who know Rick Perry confirmed to CNN that the phone number the committee has associated with the text message is his number. The cell phone number text that the text was sent from, obtained from a source knowledgeable about the investigation, appears in a database as being registered to James Richard Perry of Texas, the former governor's name. The number is also associated in a second database as registered to a Department of Energy email address associated with Perry when he was the secretary. When told these facts, Perry's spokesman had no explanation. A Boston College professor, Heather Cox Richardson, found the text striking in that its author, quote, wanted a Republican-dominated state legislature's not even wait to see who had won the election. None of those states had been called by November 4th. But to simply ignore the will of the voters, choose their own electors, and hope that the Supreme Court would hand the election to Trump, as he had been saying for weeks it would. And then, of course, there's a language employed by Liz Cheney. Beginning the day after a Trump-appointed judge named Dabney Friedrich ruled that the Department of Justice prosecutors were allowed to charge rioters with obstruction of an official proceeding under 18 U.S. Code 1512 C2. Two Oath Keepers had filed a motion contending that the certification of the electoral votes by Mike Pence was not an official proceeding, but the judge disagreed. The language of that statute, which carries the same sentence of a 20-year max as seditious conspiracy but is far easier to prove and has a much more robust legal precedent, was repeated. That language was repeated by Liz Cheney during both the committee hearing to hold Meadows in contempt and the floor debate in the full House to do the same. And Republican committee member Adam Kinzinger said Sunday, when asked if they were sending a message that the Justice Department should be prosecuting not just those that broke into the building, but Donald Trump himself, or at least investigating that possibility, Kinzinger answered, I think investigating that possibility for sure. I think Congress in this case is getting more information than law enforcement agencies and the DOJ because we've had the power and the ability to get it done. And so whatever information we get will be public record and the DOJ should take a look. And then over the weekend, Jonathan Carl from ABC told Wolf Blitzer on CNN that the Department of Justice has now released text messages and emails between high-level Trump Department justice officials, one of which is an exchange about resigning en masse if Trump were to fire acting Attorney General Rosen and install Jeffrey Clark in his place. Jeffrey Clark is the one who wrote the letters to the states telling them the DOJ found corruption, send alternate slates of electors. That's part of John Eastman's six-point coup plan. Uh, if you if you remember. And and why is this release important of this text message? We only see one of them. Because all the way back on January 25th, before Garland got there in March, only 19 days after the attack on the Capitol, the Inspector General of the Department of Justice announced an investigation into whether any former or current DOJ official engaged in an improper attempt to have the Department of Justice seek to alter the outcome of the 2020 presidential election. The investigation will encompass all relevant allegations that may arise that are within the scope of the OIG's jurisdiction. The OIG has jurisdiction to investigate allegations concerning the conduct of former and current DOJ employees. The OIG's jurisdiction does not extend to allegations against other government officials, like Trump, for example. So any text messages between former DOJ officials, particularly with the thoughts of, you know, what Jeffrey Clark was doing, would have been part of the OIG investigation. And when Garland testified before Congress in October, he swore under oath he would take any recommendations submitted by the inspector general of the DOJ based on that review. Seeing text messages from former Trump DOJ officials being released either by the department or leaked to Jonathan Carl tells me that maybe the inspector general review is complete or at least an interim report has been issued. Now, that's purely speculation, but Maine Justice was not investigating. The IG was. And as I've said, we would likely not be made aware of the inspector general's findings and recommendations as they could be part of a criminal referral in the ongoing investigation. Also, the watchdog group American Oversight has filed a lawsuit against the Justice Department 
and the Department of Homeland Security seeking officials' communications with Fox News hosts, Trump campaign associates and allies, and proponents of the stolen election lie from the weeks following the 2020 election. American Oversight issued a sweeping FOIA request, and to date, DOJ and DHS have failed to notify them of any determinations within the time frame required by law, including failing to even tell American Oversight why they haven't handed over the communications. I will keep an eye on this lawsuit because any response indicating a refusal to hand over communications for FOIA exemptions that allow the withholding of law enforcement records that could reasonably be expected to interfere with enforcement proceedings or ongoing investigations would give us a clue into whether or not they're investigating. Uh, There's also an exemption, by the way, for classified documents pertaining to national security, which is of interest since the DOJ has the National Security Division involved and the 1-6 Committee is weighing the consultation of foreign interference experts. And the plot to subvert the election even reached Kanye West in recent weeks when we learned that his publicist threatened election workers in Michigan. And this weekend, we found out that new documents show Kanye West's doomed White House campaign, quote, styled as an independent third-party effort, appears to have disguised potentially millions of dollars in services it received from a secretive network of GOP operatives, including advisors to the Republican Party elites and a managing partner at one of the top conservative political firms in the country. Potentially even more alarming, the 2020 Kanye campaign committee did not even report paying some of these advisors and used odd abbreviations for another, moves which campaign finance experts say appear designed to mask the association between known GOP operatives in the campaign and could constitute a violation of federal election laws. Federal disclosures also show the campaign enlisted legal services from an array of firms with links to Trump and the Republican Party, including leading voter fraud conspiracy theorists <clears throat> and more than a half a dozen legal practices, which went on to push baseless election fraud lawsuits on behalf of Trump uh, or the GOP. Could some of that funding have come from Sidney Powell's PAC, currently under federal investigation? We don't know. But it's imperative that the Department of Justice investigate the funders and leaders of the violent attack and the efforts to overturn the election results. All signs point to there being at least an inquiry, though we continue to feel left in the dark with no clear signs of action. Only these clues. I'll continue to assert that a failure to investigate the violent attack links to members of Congress, involvement of top DOJ officials, the pressure campaign to throw out electoral votes, possible foreign assistance in the coup, the funding of the rallies and election lawsuits, and the big lie, would be the most egregious dereliction of duty in the history of the country. I, for one, don't see them shirking that responsibility, but time will tell. The committee has agreed to make any referrals to the Department of Justice before the end of next year, and it's up to the Department of Justice to do justice. I'll be right back with host of Justice Matters, Glenn Kirshner, right after this. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Honored today to be joined by former federal prosecutor, MSNBC contributor, and, uh, of course, host of Justice Matters, Mr. Glenn Kirshner. Glenn, how's it going? Uh, going well. How you doing, Angie? Uh, I'm doing well. Uh, I know you've got a lot of uh, hits you're doing today on the Sunday circuit, so I wanted to talk to you real quick about the latest video you just posted minutes ago on the Justice Matters YouTube page about the statement that uh, Donald, the former guy, made over the weekend where I retweeted it saying, sounds like somebody got a letter. Can you tell everyone what, what, what I mean by that? AG, this is my favorite, right? Because Donald Trump issued a statement, I think it was on Friday, and everybody got angry and upset and because he's lying and he's you know acting like a juvenile, he's calling people names. I love this statement. I can't tell you how much I love this statement because Donald Trump is nothing if not predictable, transparent, and a complete buffoon. So you always know what the subtext is when he issues a statement. I've got it right in front of me. Let me just knock it out. Um, 
all the Democrats want to do is put people in jail. They are vicious, violent and radical left thugs. They are destroying people's lives, which is the only thing they are good at. They couldn't get out of Afghanistan without disgracing our country. The economy and inflation are a disaster. They're letting thugs and murderers into our country. And here's the tell. Their DAs, AGs, and Dem law enforcement are out of control. AG, let's read between the lines and the lies. <laughs> it sure seems like somebody told him, hey, Donald, you're about to be indicted. So what does he do? He goes on the attack. He loses his mind. He starts accusing the people that are about to charge him of doing all sorts of horrible things and having horrible motivations. I'm telling you, something, something happened that produced this statement. And that's something I think has to do with a prosecution. Yeah, I mean, the guy doesn't have an original thought. Nothing that he puts out just comes from nowhere. It's reaction to something. And whether or not he's been told that his kids or him or his his organization and, you know, you said the tell DAs and AGs uh, makes it sound like it's coming right out of New York. And we know they've been looking at little Rico uh, there for a while. And and honestly, I, I got to tell you, when we learned that the editor of Forbes magazine had testified before now the second special grand jury impaneled by Cy Vance. Uh, about Trump telling him, look, I need you to say I'm worth more money than I am because that looks good to lenders. That kind of intent right there and that you have somebody willing to testify to it could be a nail in the coffin of the, you know, the last pieces of what has to be proven and the fact that his former banker, Rosemary, Rosemary Vrablick, is working with prosecutors and that his accountant from Mazars has recently testified before the grand jury, cannot be good for him. And if we look at the first six-month grand jury, we got those indictments June, July, August, September, October, November, December, a month into the grand jury. And and we're a month into this grand jury, which is now investigating these separate things. So uh, I think that there there's a lot of rumors out there. Nobody has any direct knowledge of, of whether or not anyone's going to be indicted. But this statement, right? I mean, it is in reaction to something, and he has called out DAs and AGs. And the only other DA looking into him is Fonnie Willis, and she's not even interviewed Raffensperger yet, so she's still at the very early stages. And let me add on to that beautiful parade of horribles you just related regarding who is cooperating against him in New York. We have heard nothing from Alan Weisselberg for a very long time. That could mean he has decided to flip and cooperate. We don't know. We also, I know you, you alluded to it. You said, we've heard some rumors. You know, there was, um, there was some tweets that were sent out by David K. Johnston. And I think he had a, an appearance on TV where I, I think he was reading the tea leaves. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he is a respected Pulitzer Prize winning investigative journalist. And he knows Trump. In fact, I think Trump would count him among, you know, one of his arch nemeses. Um, and he said, look, what I see is Donald Trump about to be indicted in New York for, um, you know, for some kind of an enterprise crime, not just some standalone tax crime. Now, uh, he didn't give us anything that we could grab onto concretely to back that up. But boy, there's there's a certain relationship between this statement that he issued and what David K. Johnston said. 
that I think somebody sent Donnie a letter saying, get ready, sport, because we're going to be talking about turn-in dates sometime soon. Yeah, and I've spoken to the former assistant district attorney in, in Manhattan um, a couple of times, and that enterprise law is is what we refer to as Little Rico. It is New York's version of the racketeering that says just three crimes in furtherance of fraudulently increasing the bottom line of a business can be enough to charge racketeering. And racketeering in New York carries a 25-year max sentence with a one- to three-year mandatory minimum, mandatory minimum, if they can convict and maintain that conviction. So I think when he was talking about enterprise crimes, I think that's what he was referring to. And let's not forget, Trump's organization, right? It bears his name, stands criminally indicted of a 15-year-long criminal scheme to defraud in the first degree in violation of New York state law. So, you know, you're going to have more than just a few racketeering acts supporting a mini RICO charge. You're going to have 15 years worth of financial crimes, right? So it's coming. I feel like it, it is, it's all about to come home to roost. People will say, yeah, you've been telling us that for a long time. You told us that when the Mueller report was about to drop. And yes, I did. Uh, and it should have come home to roost then, if not for Bill Barr. But um, but I, I do think we're getting there. Yeah, I, I, I concur. And yeah, we don't have a Bill Barr or a Trump anymore or a Rosenstein anymore. Um, I do have to take a quick break, but I want to ask you about, um, you know, whether or not any charges coming out of New York should actually preclude the Department of Justice from doing what they're supposed to do. Uh, but I do have to take a quick break. We'll, we'll be right back. Everybody, we're talking with Glenn Kirshner, host of Justice Matters. And uh, before the break, I was talking about, you know, a lot of people are worried or they think for some reason that you can only do one or the other. You can only get Trump in New York for his tax crimes or his uh, business valuation or little Rico. Uh, and then if you do that, you can't get him on federal crimes. That is completely untrue, is it not? Yeah, I can't tell you how many times I was investigating uh, somebody in D.C., and that same person was being investigated across the river in Virginia or just up the street in Maryland or somewhere else in another jurisdiction in the United States. And, you know, by and large, we try to cooperate with one another. You know, prosecutors all have big egos and sometimes they get very territorial over their defendants. But it only makes sense for multiple jurisdictions looking at the same criminal target to coordinate and indeed cooperate with one another. So I hope that Georgia, New York, and the feds are productively communicating with one another. But I don't think they are dependent on one another with respect to when to charge, what to charge, how to charge, or who to charge. So it may be that New York is the first one out of the gates with a criminal indictment of Donald Trump. And I'm telling you, AG, as I've said before, I'm not a betting man. One dollar is my betting limit, but I would bet a buck. The minute the first indictment hits, Everybody else is going to want to be in the prosecuting Donald Trump business because they're going to say, now we look bad if New York is prosecuting him for his crimes, but we down here in Georgia are not. And, you know, that dam will break. It will break. It's just a matter of time. <clears throat> yeah, I think it's the first one who, who, who has to go first. Um, and, and speaking of the Department of Justice, something interesting happened this weekend, and it was a blurb on Wolf Blitzer with Jonathan Carl from ABC. 
that a tweet, a series of tweets uh, was released, according to Jonathan Carl, released by the Department of Justice of lawyers, Trump officials, well, under Trump, lawyers in the Department of Justice texting each other saying that they would resign. Uh, they were Team Rosen. And if Trump pulled Rosen out, they would resign. And I'm with you, Team Rosen, if he tried to put Jeffrey Clark in there. And I've been trying to get more information on this. But if the Department of Justice has released that text message and the discussions between top Trump DOJ officials were a matter of investigation by the Department of Justice Inspector General that started in January, I'm wondering if these aren't coming from materials produced by the Inspector General. We've been waiting for that Inspector General investigation into Trump DOJ officials to be completed because Garland has sworn to Congress under oath that he would take the recommendations of the Department of Justice Inspector General. And I can't imagine, since since the Department of Justice was not investigating, it was the IG that was investigating, that these things wouldn't be released unless there was some kind of, they finished the report, maybe an interim report was handed over, or maybe Jonathan Carl was leaked this from somebody inside and it's not done. They weren't clear. Wolf didn't ask the question. I was wondering what your thoughts were on that. So, and you and I have been discussing this, you know, pretty much around the clock, trying to figure it out, A.G., I don't think it was an official release because DOJ is not in the habit of officially releasing a piece of evidence without um, issuing an accompanying press release saying, this is what this is, and here's why we're releasing it. And because there is no official DOJ press release, it it smells like a, a leak to me. And I get that there are some people in the Department of Justice who wanted to be on the record even if only within the Department of Justice via emails and text messages, as being on Team Rosen and not Team Treason, which would have been Jeffrey Clark's team. So uh, all of that makes perfect sense to me. The piece that I, I can't quite figure out yet is where it's coming from, what the purpose of releasing it is, if it wasn't just you know some good work by a reporter convincing somebody to leak something to him. So. Um, I find this to be a curiosity right now, but, you know, I I think we can go back to our it's about to come home to roost theme, because as you say, the IG, I am quite confident, is going to find all kinds of potential crimes in its investigation, which will then be sort of referred or given over to um, uh, Merrick Garland, Congress with the House Select Committee investigation heating up. And with Liz Cheney now talking like a prosecutor, something that you first spotted, and I was asked to do an MSNBC daily piece about, which I just tweeted out with a hat tip for you for first spotting the 1512 connection. Um, It feels like all of the walls are closing in. And I know we've been saying it for a very long time, but that doesn't mean it's not true. Yeah. And again, we have very different leadership at the Department of Justice than we did in the past. We have very different leadership in the White House as we did in the past. Uh, We still have kind of who knows what the fuck leadership at the FBI. But I have faith in the thousands and thousands of FBI officials who work there. And of course, when we now have in place new U.S. attorneys at the U.S. attorney's offices, particularly in D.C., nominated by Biden. So we aren't going to have the kind of resistance and obstruction and all out falsification and spin of the findings of these investigations as we did when we were awaiting the Mueller findings. Yeah. And here, let's just put a little bit of a footnote to that. If 
the, the Republicans take the House in 2022, they can make a lot of mischief. No, they can't reach directly in to a DOJ investigation, indictment or prosecution and put a stop to it. But they can and probably will draft articles of impeachment for who knows who, any Biden official that they don't like and perhaps Biden himself. They can hold all kinds of hearings, oversight hearings, which will be obstruction hearings if it's a Republican controlled house. They can try to defund. They can there. There's a lot of mischief they can make. Now, I would view that as just more criminal conduct by them trying to, you know, if nothing else, continue to cover up their own complicity in the destruction of our democracy. But let's be clear, they can make mischief, which is why, you know, they can pass all the voter suppression laws they want. They can pass all these bogus laws allowing state legislatures to just corruptly put in whatever electors they want, ignoring the popular vote. They can't stop us from going to the polls. Mm -hmm. And that's what we have to do in 2022. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, agreed. hundred percent. And I appreciate your time today. Thanks for the shout out in the, in the op-ed. I really appreciate it. And uh, everybody tune in to justice matters. The video is out now. And you're going to want to take a look. Thanks very much. Glenn Kirshner. Thanks, AG. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back with the good news. Who likes good news, everyone? Then good news, everyone. Good news, good news. Do you have any good news, corrections, confessions, holiday photos, recipes? I'm still taking Halloween photos. I will take them all year. Uh, I would love to see the cats in the tree, uh, in the Christmas tree. That's always fun. <laughs> I had one friend who put vacuum cleaners up around the Christmas tree to keep the cats away. Uh, but if you have anything you want to send in, please feel free to do that by going to dailybeanspod.com and clicking on contact. Our first submission is from James, pronoun he and him. He said, you mentioned the song, You're a Mean One, Mr. Grinch, on a recent episode, and I thought you might be interested in a fun fact about it. Yes, I am, James. How the Grinch Stole Christmas was narrated by the great Boris Karloff. But Karloff didn't uh, do any of the singing. The singer of that song had one of the best names in the history of voice acting, and it suited his voice to a T. Thurl Ravenscroft. Most people haven't heard of him, but most people in North America have definitely heard him. Thanks to the longest running role as a voice actor, he was the original Tony the Tiger. They're great. Oh, cool. So the their great guy sang the You're a Mean One, Mr. Grinch. I've attached a photo of him from the time he recorded You're a Mean One. He kind of reminds me of the wonderful Vincent Price in this shot. Oh, yeah. His voice is amazing, too. Uh, fun fact, he did the laugh at the end of Thriller and the, the monologue at the end of the song Thriller. That's, by the way, Vincent Price, not not Thurl Ravenscroft. Uh, I've also attached a couple of photos of our old cats, since Cobalt and Denim tend to get all the attention. <laughs> These are shots of the Maine Coon Grendel looking uncharacteristically serious and Mouse relaxing in a box with Grendel lurking in the back. Oh, yeah, look at that guy. He does remind me of Vincent Price. Same kind of mustache. Totally. Oh, look at the calico baby and the tabby baby. Thank you for these photos. And happy holidays, James, to you and Cobalt and everybody, everyone over there at your at your family. Denim, and we, we hope you have a happy holiday. All right, next up from, let's see, Mara D. Okay, yeah, rhymes with clarity, charity, temerity, Mara D. She and her are the pronouns. Hello, my beans team friends. 
So this is a shit kids say, but it's really just an excuse to send you pictures of my cats. (laughs) Hey, everyone, you do not need an excuse to send photos of your cats. You can just send them. Uh, We did our holiday family photo shoot yesterday, and it went exactly as planned. Well, as exactly as expected anyway. So this event happened several years ago. My ex, we'll call him DF, and I had split, and the relationship was not too unlike yours, AG. There was a lot of pain in therapy. Shortly after the split, I picked up my two nieces from their dance class, and they were about six and nine. The nine-year-old asked where DF was, and in the best way you can to kids, I explained that we were no longer dating. The six-year-old looked up at me and nodded annoyingly, looked at my car and said, he's in your trunk, isn't he? (laughs) She's a few years older now, almost a teenager, and I continued to try to talk to her, uh, talk her into the CIA, because I think she's a good candidate. Oh, very cool. Oh, look at this kitty. (laughs) <laughs> I had a cat with that that exact coloration named Emma. She looks just like Emma. How beautiful. Oh, what a honey. Oh, and there's a tabby with a snarl wearing a hat. Probably none pleased. <laughs> Thank you for sending that in. Um, that is awesome, Meredith. All right. Next up from Neil, pronouns he and him. Greetings from the Legumination. Thank you. First, let me thank you for keeping us all sane and stable. As justice rolls glacially across the landscape, I know we'll get there. But like so many others, I'm anxious. Me too, Neil. Me too. Next, I do have pet tax submissions. But a few minutes before I began typing, my dear wife's computer, resident, uh, residence for pet pics, caught a case of the hiccups. So you'll have to wait a bit for pics of our rescue pets. Trust me, it'll be worth it. Regarding Mondegreens, those are misheard lyrics. I never thought Elton John wanted Tony Danza to hold him closer, but I did wonder why he wanted the tiny dancer to count your head lice on the highway. (laughs) I also raised an eyebrow when Eddie Money sang, I think I'm in love in my lobster glove. I think I'm in love and I can't get it up. (laughs) But the weirdest Mondegreen was the first time a friend shared the Doors L.A. woman with me, and I heard, well, a diggle diggle Donna bought a narrow goat. Tickle Lickle Ron said, wished we'd a window, whittle little girl in a Hollywood bungalow. (laughs) I was hard pressed to figure out what the whittling would accomplish. Maybe she was whittling a window. So in good news, after two semesters of having to deal with anxiety and depression while yanking all my classes into online format and watch blank squares with names in them, I finally get to re-enter the classroom. This is my jam. My students are right there. I'm performative. I pace. I gesticulate. My buddy tells me I'm half academic and half stand-up comic. And I'm not entirely sure I believe him. I do not have a tight five. (laughs) But my students do laugh a lot. That's not a style that comes across on Zoom. So this semester has been a relief. Anyway, Louis Gohmert is dumb as a bottle of farts. (laughs) Keep up the great work. Thanks, Neil. And thanks for doing the good work at teaching. All right, next up from Jean, pronouns she, her. Hello, pig pick follow-up. <laughs> this bit got dropped from my original submit. No pod pets, but here's a picture of Prancer, one of several pot-bellied pigs available at the Santa Cruz County, California shelter. They don't say, but several appear to have arrived together, so maybe a true rescue situation. Now, included below, Cupid. Sorry for the delay, but I was researching this bit of good news. AG was bummed recently as Dairy Queen discontinued non-chocolate ice cream dips. I did a Scooby take, as my local DQ had them before the shutdowns, although I hadn't been to that side of town since then. Checked the online menu, showed only chocolate and dreamsicle, which apparently is orange-ish. They didn't answer the phone, but I knew I'd be nearby this week and stopped in. They had chocolate, dreamsicle, and cherry. Aha! I seem to recall seeing all three well-dip stations. 
and figured even they'd take on, you know, take on the new flavor, they still might also have one of the old ones. I checked the San Diego area locations and found two Santo Road and Town Center Parkway Santee with the same chocolate dreamsicle info. <laughs> Called them up. They don't have dreamsicle. They have chocolate cherry and butterscotch. Oh, so no, not gone, but limited release. If those stores aren't anywhere near you, couldn't hurt to ask others closer. Good luck and happy slurping. Delay also allowed a listen to the Brian Klaas interview. On a bit of a tangent, I would ask anyone in the community involved in the hiring process to please review your templates. So much is done online now, and the algorithms filter based on your input. For example, if a bachelor's degree is in the required section, it will likely not filter out any resume without one. Tip, if it doesn't call for a particular field of study, it is not required. Put it in the preferred or desired section. That's a very good point. So put any degree requirements, quote unquote, out of the requirement section into the preferred or desired section. As an older worker raised by older parents who said, work hard and do a good job and it'll be rewarded. Yes, children, that used to be a thing. I spent decades working my way from payroll clerk to program project manager, but didn't go to college other than some work-related classes and fun stuff. That somehow disqualifies me from the work I did for years, yet I'm overqualified when I try to take even a baby step down the ladder. Today, virtually all white-collar jobs, even down to receptionists in some cases, require a degree, excluding many hardworking, experienced candidates. You could be missing out on a hidden gem who would go the extra mile in all their work and even track down your favorite ice cream dip based on an offhand remark. Thank you. Because that's who they are. Working to relocate to an area with fewer degrees per capita and disentangle from the ex-post divorce. But it's a struggle. Thanks to the Beans team and Good News contributors for helping me keep my chin up. There's a pig. Thank you, Gene, for the update on the pig. I was like, what is this pig here? So cute. Um, all right, let's see. I think this is our last submission. Yep, finally, from Erica, pronouns she and her. Hello, AG, Dana, Amy, and the rest. A few episodes back, Dana asked for everyone to send pics of kids with their first Santa visit. Yes, I want these too. Attached, you'll find my all-time favorite picture of my then two-year-old Johan and seven-month-old Stieg. For Johan, it had been, up till that year, no problem to hang with Santa. His first two years of Santa pics have been happy. He's a happy chappy. Then comes his little brother, who was a little more sensitive. He was scared of every animal he encountered. He once cried in a panic as an infant when a squirrel ran past his car seat on the lawn in the park. So I guess this year, Johan was feeling a little sympathy panic as he sat on Santa's lap. The first photo is so beloved that we now try to recreate a silly Santa photo every year. Uh, some are better than others, but I've also attached this year's photo. As you can see, everyone is adapted to Santa quite nicely, but the ripe old ages of 9 and 11. Hope you all have a wonderful holiday and get some well-deserved rest. As Pod Pet Tax, I've included pics of our little, uh, new little brother-sister void cat fur babies, Ebes and Juno. They are the funniest pair of cats I've ever had. They're eight months old now, and they tear the house up nightly with their nocturnal shenanigans. Ah, oh, yeah, night zoomies. All right, let's see. Oh, my God. <laughs> Wood paneling makes them look like they're in a sauna. Oh, my gosh, how adorable. Oh, this one's pretty funny this year. Hey, cool hair. Both of these kids. Handsome, handsome kids. Oh, and the kitties in a basket. Put the fucking kitties in a basket. Oh, my God, this is so adorable. Thank you, Erica, so much. Thanks to everyone for your submissions. I do want more Santa photos. By the way, I'm going to try to include mine this week um, from when I was a baby. So send them in. Send them in to us at dailybeanspod.com and click on contact. That's where you can send anything, any of the submissions that you want to send. 
Uh, tomorrow, Andrew Torres is going to join me for headlines and good news. And that's tomorrow and Wednesday. And then Thursday and Friday, Amy Carrero will be here. So thanks for letting me go solo today. I appreciate it. Dana's out this week. We'll be out next week, but you will have content all week. You will get your beans, I promise. Uh, and until tomorrow, everybody, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet, and take care of your mental health. I've been AG, and them's the beans. Refried beans. I like refried beans. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry... We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.